Amen. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you are our creator. You are our king. And one day, all of your creatures, Lord, will bow before you. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one who has defeated every sin, the one who invites us to cast our burdens onto him. Lord, we love you and we worship you and we delight now to to bow our heads, to to bend our knees, to, to worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. What a privilege to do now what all creation will do, Lord, when you return. And Father, I pray that you would be present here with us now as we open up your word, Lord. I pray, God, that you would uh, be present here with us, Lord. God, please protect my mouth from speaking anything that it would not be true or edifying, Lord. Please protect my heart from, from fear of what others might think of me or, or pride based on what others might think of me, Lord. Protect all of us from distraction in this moment. And Lord, we want to know you. We want to be known by you. We want to walk in your truth. And so we invite you, Lord God, to move by your spirit for your glory. If you agree, say amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 48. Our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, uh, things will make a lot more sense if you're able to follow along. Psalm 48. A couple of weeks ago, The Economist magazine out of the UK released their annual global livability index where they take 140 cities around the world and they rank these cities based on a number of criteria, stability, healthcare, culture, environment, education, infrastructure, and they, they put each of these cities through this rubric or through this, through this grid and then come up with a, with a ranking system for what the, the best cities in the world are. Now, Vancouver used to sort of reign for a number of years here, but they've been uh, overtaken by some other countries. Here were the results from, from this year. Uh, Vienna, Austria was number one. They, they took the number one spot away from Melbourne, Australia. You can see that Calgary is coming in at number four, and then there's Toronto, Canada. We can all take credit for that. Uh, just write down the four, write down the 401. Toronto, uh, Canada came in at number eight. Now, Canadians, we often just take a little bit of courage and a little bit of encouragement from the fact, I mean, well, where are the Americans in the top 10? We got three countries in the top 10. The, 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 the closest American city was, was 23rd, and that was Honolulu. I mean, does that even count? <laughs> uh, New York City is, it was, at, was at 57, and so we, 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 we did pretty well in Toronto being eight ahead of Paris, ahead of London, ahead of uh, Hong Kong. And uh, the, the index here, as I mentioned, had all of, these, all of these criteria. This is how they define what a great city is. A Psalm 48 is, is a unique psalm. It's a psalm about a city. It's a psalm about a city that is great, but it's, it's not great because of its infrastructure or its culture or its, or its access to, uh, to education or the way it, it handles environmental issues. No, it's a city that is great because a great God has chosen to dwell among the people of that city. So let's read Psalm 48 together. It says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. 
For, for behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them. They are anguished as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This psalm is a psalm about a city. It's a psalm about a city that is great because a great God dwells there. The introduction says that it's a song. It's a psalm written by the sons of Korah. We're sort of in this section of the psalms as we go sequentially, psalm by psalm. This is a collection of psalms written by the sons of Korah who were doorkeepers in the temple and singer-songwriter, uh, worship leaders among the people of God. And they, they wrote this psalm about the city of Jerusalem. And they talk about the greatness of this city. And here's the first reason why this city is great. Why the psalm was written. It's because of this. It's because of the presence of the king. It, it wasn't that there was anything particular more, more beautiful about Jerusalem as a city. As it would compare with other cities at the time. But God was present there. And that made all of the difference. Verse 1 says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Our city is known as the city of our God, the psalmist says. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. Uh, Jerusalem was built sort of on, a, on a, a mountain range. It wasn't the highest mountain range in the surrounding area. It wasn't even the highest mountain range in Israel. In fact, when David moved the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem, he was actually moving it down in elevation. But it is God who lifts this city up above all of the other cities. It says it's his holy mountain. It's beautiful in elevation. It is the joy of of all the earth. The vision for this city and the scope of this psalm is bigger than the city itself. What, what, what the psalmist is getting at, he's zeroing in on Jerusalem, but his, his focus is not merely Jerusalem. It's on God and his relationship to the entire world which he created. At the end of verse 2, it says, Mount Zion in the far north. Now, I know when you think about Jerusalem and the promised land and the Middle East, far north doesn't exactly come to mind, does it? Uh, that, that would uh, be like, you know, like saying you know, Tampa Bay up in the far north, right? We, 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 don't, we don't talk uh, that way about you know, Los Angeles, California in, in, the, in the far north. Quito, Ecuador in the far, that just it doesn't work. It doesn't sound right, does it? So... We need to remember that we're reading here a book of poetry, not a geography textbook. And uh, back in Psalm 46, it talked about a river flowing through the city of Jerusalem. There is no river. 
And so Jerusalem is not in the far north. Now, if you have an NIV Bible with you, you're like, I don't know, you're sure we're talking about far north. It says something about Mount Zaphon here. And a Zaphon means north, and Baal worship, Canaanite Baal worship, happened on a mountain called the, the northernmost mountain, the, the, the highest mountain. You see, north, up in terms of geography, is also associated with up in terms of into the sky and into heaven. Let me show you what I mean. In Isaiah chapter 14, when it's talking about the king of Babylon, and many scholars, and I also believe that Isaiah 14 is prophesying, talking about, giving a, giving a description of the fall of Satan, this, this evil king, this evil ruler, the king of Babylon, who's really a picture of the adversary, Satan, the devil himself. It says in Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. This is Satan trying to take God's place. I will sit on the mount of the assembly, notice this, in the far reaches of the north. He's not talking about the North Pole. He's not talking about uh, uh, you know, going to none of it. No, he's, he's, he's talking about being elevated higher. It says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. So when it's saying that Jerusalem is in the far north, he's saying that it is the city of cities. It is greater than any other city. It is, in fact, a city that is far above all of the other cities. It's like a heavenly city. In the far north on Mount Zaphon. And then at the end of verse 2, the city is referred to as the city of the great king. Jesus actually quoted Psalm 48 in Matthew 5. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was talking about the importance of telling the truth and being honest. And you don't have to make promises and you don't need to swear to God or swear on the temple or swear on the city or, or anything. like. Jesus just said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He said, again you have heard it said of those of old. Said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So the idea is don't don't. Just follow through on what you promise. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You see, people in Jesus' day, they were afraid to sort of make a promise. You know, God strike me down if I don't do this. Or I swear to God that I will follow through on this promise. So they would swear to have, they swear on heaven. Or they would swear or promise based on the city of Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying, listen, God owns it all. Don't swear on Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. And he goes on to say, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil and so Jesus said that the city of Jerusalem belongs to God he says that the very hairs on our head and my hair is turning white and some of it's falling out and God's sovereign over all of that I, I this isn't happening because I chose it and and Jesus is saying just let your yes be yes and your no be no and he quoted Psalm 48 to make a point there you see the city is great because God is in the city what makes a city great it's the presence of God what makes a person great? It's the presence of God. It's not how much money they make or how successful they are or how many friends they have. It's, is God with them? What makes a marriage great? Is it how well they communicate or is it date night or is it what? No, it's, it's is God with them? Are they leaning on God? Are they acknowledging his presence that their marriage is a cord of three strands that cannot uh, be uh, broken? What makes... 
what makes a church great? Is it, the, is it the, the church property or the church programs or the church's pastor? Oh, please. It is, it is the presence of God that makes a church great. And Psalm 48 is a reminder of we need to ensure and welcome and invite the presence of God because that is the true source of greatness. At the end of verse 3 he says, within her citadels God has made himself known as a fortress. As a fortress. And then this next stanza gives an example of how God proved to be a fortress. So jot this down. Secondly, if you're taking notes, so we have the presence of the king within the city, and then we also have the protection of the king. The protection of the king. Verse 4 says, for behold, look, check this out. Let me tell you a story. It says, the kings assembled. They came on together. So the people had, had come to Jerusalem. The kings had come there. Not to uh, not, not to participate in the, the glorious presence of God and to live there, but to destroy the city. They came with the intent of doing battle against the city of Jerusalem. But verse 4 says, as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in Labor. The idea is, is all they did, they came to the city, they had all of their chariots and their horsemen and their, and their archers and, and their, their battering rams and everything ready to invade the city, to lay it to siege. And all they did was stand there, look at the city, and then they turned and ran away. They were in a panic. They were trembling. And now it says that they were in anguish as of a woman in labor. Now remember, this is written by the sons of Korah. Men, here's a tip. Never equate anything you're going through with childbearing. That never, that never ends well. Never try to compare any of your experiences with, with what your spouse might have gone through in, in giving birth. There is no parallel. So you can just imagine if the sons of Korah are going to be so bold under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to compare what their enemies were going through with, child, with, with childbearing, it must have been awful. So, the protection of the king. Then, the ESV translators insert a nice little tongue twister in verse 7. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Say that five times fast. Shattered the ships of Tarshish. Be really careful in how you uh, articulate uh, that uh, particular uh, uh, verse of Scripture. Now again, this is not, this is, a, this is a book of poetry. This is not a recording of military history and strategy. Tarshish never invaded Jerusalem. There has never been a nautical or a, or a naval invasion of Jerusalem. Not only is there no river running through it, Jerusalem is totally landlocked. I mean, the ships would have to, you know, come, come into, uh, into the bay so, and, then, and then march for miles and miles and miles. So there's something else going on here. Now, Tarshish, is, that's modern-day Spain. So way out on the far western edge of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Jonah was trying to, was trying to flee to. He was trying to get as far away from Nineveh as he could, all the way west. Now, 
if you were, if you were to make a ship that was going to sail all the way across the Mediterranean, and in fact, because of where Spain, Tarshish is located, out into the ocean as well, Tarshish had the reputation for having the greatest ships because they had to get through the most tumultuous waters. And it says here that a simple east wind shattered these, these well-built uh, warships. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. Notice how the east wind didn't blow them over so they capsized. It didn't just sort of rock the boat a little bit. No, the, the wind itself caused the vessels themselves to disintegrate. They were shattered. They broke into pieces. What we have here is you have these mighty armies coming up to the city, marching, and then looking at the city and turning around. Why would they turn around? There's no explanation apart from God. And then you have these mighty warships from Tarshish, and they get shattered by the wind. There's no explanation for that other than... God. And what the psalmist is describing here, using these two examples, is that the people in Jerusalem had experienced a victory that was so incredible and so miraculous that there was no explanation for why it happened apart from God. And based on the description of what is happening here, these, these, these kings coming and, and simply looking at the city and then turning around. The, 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 the most clear example that we can think this, this story is based on is an event that happens. It's recorded three times in the Bible. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 18, but it's also retold in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and in Isaiah 36 and 37. Now we all agree that the life of Jesus Christ was really important and because the life of Jesus Christ was really important and what he did on earth, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all telling the same stories from different angles. It's such a, such a crucial moment in the history of the people of God, God coming to earth. In the Old Testament, it's very rare to have a story retold. David and Goliath only happens one, is only told in, in one place. The, the, the creation story is only told in one place place. All of these key moments are only told in one place, but in the history of the people of God, the, 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 the story that I'm about to share with you is so crucial and so vital and such a hinge on which the history of the people of God turns, it's recorded three times in God's word. So in 2 Kings uh, chapter uh, 18, it says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the four fortified cities of Judah and took them. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. A few years earlier, another king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, he invaded the northern tribes, Samaria, and he carried them all into exile, but he didn't make it into Judah now Sennacherib is, is taking over and he has destroyed every fortified city in Judah except one, Jerusalem. And now he has the city surrounded. And he's going back and forth sending messengers and he's got a propaganda campaign going on and there's letters going back and forth between the king of Assyria and Hezekiah the king of Judah. And if you look at verse 20 of chapter 19, the prophet Isaiah gets involved. And so Isaiah was a, was a contemporary of 
a Hezekiah. And in, in chapter 19, verse 20, after Hezekiah prays about this, Isaiah comes as a prophet and, and it says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. So God says, I'm going to answer your prayer. Now look over at chapter 19, verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God says, God says not one arrow is going to be shot. No one is getting into this city. In verse 35, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. It sounds a lot like Psalm 48, doesn't it? They came. They were ready to fight. All they did was look at the city. Didn't fire an arrow. Didn't build a siege work. Didn't, didn't do any of those things. And yet God came through. A victory that is unexplainable apart from the power of God. Now turn with me back to Psalm 48. Psalm 48, after describing this incredible victory, in verse 8 they say, As we have heard, so we have seen. Now the sons of Korah are saying if they lived through that, that, that battle that Hezekiah saw God win for them, or maybe it was some other battle, they are saying, as we have heard, now we've seen it. We've heard our forefathers talk about what God did back in the day, but now we're actually seeing it. It's right in front of our eyes. It's undeniable that God is awesome. And maybe you've just been sort of involved in sort of secondhand Christianity where, where God doesn't really seem to be working in your life, but you're still just kind of trusting him. Listen, your moment is coming. And God is the kind of God who does things for his glory that, that cannot be explained apart from his presence being among his people. And so the people are saying, this relationship with God thing is real and he is at work today. So Psalm 48 is looking back to a big battle where the, the enemy was literally destroyed instantly. That's looking back to that battle. It, it made me think of a battle in the future that is coming. The battle that's described, the battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19. Check this out. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That's, that's Christ. So they're gathered. And then I love this. I love the next verse. And the beast was captured. There's no, and the beast did this, and then the false prophet tried to do this, but then Jesus, you know, he grabbed them and he threw them. No, it's like it was over before it started. Jesus is like, he's out there on the horse. He's like, okay, you got all your armies, you got all your battles. Okay, you're done. Lake of fire. Okay, bye. An instantaneous victory. Psalm 48, it looks back in history, but we can look forward. And it says, And the rest of the slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds gorged with their flesh. 
And so, and so this instantaneous, unquestionable victory, loved ones, this is what will ultimately come. And in verse 8, it goes on, it says, In the city of the Lord of hosts, again, in the city of our God, and before the Selah, it says, which God will establish forever. That God has chosen this city to be the place where his people, that it would be established forever. And then there's a, a Selah. Now think about that in your own life. Think about the presence of God. Think about the protection of God in your own life and the promise that he has made to you to be with you forever. That's what gives us a reason to want to worship him. So we have the, the praise of the king. The, 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 sorry, we have the, the, the presence of the king, the protection of the king, and then thirdly, the praise of the king. Verse 19 says, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. The temple is the place of worship, but it's not just a place of coming to sing songs. It's a place to really think, to, 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 uh, to, to, to meditate, to, to reason. We have, we have contemplated your steadfast love, your hesed, which is, which is this beautiful, powerful, single word in Hebrew. And just about all of the English translations use at least two words to try to describe what hesed means. It's God's covenant love for us. Some translations call it loving kindness or unfailing love or faithful love or steadfast love. The idea that God will never let go of his people. That he can't stop loving the people that he's promised to love. In verse 10 it says, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your name, that's knowing God. The more that we know God, the more we want to praise him. As your name, so your praise. And again, it's not just about the city of Jerusalem. Look, look at where it goes in verse 10. To the ends of the earth. The mission statement of our church is to make disciples of all nations. That's what Christ has called us uh, to do, to, to spread this knowledge of the love of God, the hesed of God, to spread the knowledge of the name of God and the praise of God to the ends of the earth. He, he goes on to say in verse 10, your, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And then we're invited to go on this tour of the city. Verse 12 says, walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation. Now, I don't think that the psalmist is saying, go around the city and look how well fortified we are. When it's talking about the, the ramparts or, or the citadels and the towers, it's not saying we've got more towers than any other city and no one can ever destroy our towers. No, I think it's more like Count how many towers. Before the Assyrians came, we had, you know, 11 towers. How many towers do we have now? 11. Look how many citadels we had. We had three citadels before the Assyrians showed up. How many do we have now? Three. It's like, number them. Do an inventory. Nothing is missing. Nothing is destroyed. God has completely protected us. It is a miracle that this city is still standing. There are almost 200,000 soldiers outside our door. And not a single rampart or tower or citadel has been torn down or even 
damaged. And then in verse 13, the, the chain continues on. They said, well, we have heard, but now we've seen. And then in verse thir- at the end of verse 13, it says that you may tell the next generation. You need, to, you need to now do the job of telling them what you saw God in your life so that one day what they've heard, they would one day see. And see the great protection of God. Now, you might think that in in verse 14 would say something like, tell the next generation that this is Jerusalem. This is the city of God. This is Mount Zion. You would think that this psalm about a city would end with this, tell the next generation about how great this city is. But that's not what verse 14 says. It says, tell the next generation, this is God. Look at the ramparts, look at the towers, look at the citadels, look at all of these things, but look right through them and see the powerful God and how his presence has protected us and how he is worthy of our praise. Loved ones, we need to look at things in our life and look through them and see God at work. We need to look at this building that God has provided and and don't look at, at, at the walls or the bricks or the mortar. Look through them and see what God, this is God. Don't think about your loved ones or your small group leader or the relationships that you have or the strength of your marriage and think, oh, this is us. We did this. No, this is God. What makes it great is that there is a great God behind it all. This is God. It says, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Now, this is really interesting. It's a psalm about a city. But then it says that God will guide us. And the people, the sons of Korah, living in the city of Jerusalem, serving in the city of Jerusalem, worshiping in the city of Jerusalem, feel as though God is taking them somewhere else. He's, he's guiding them. They're, they're on a journey. They're not, in, 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 in one sense, they, they will stay there forever, but in another sense, there is another place where God is guiding them. And in my ESV Bible here, there's a footnote on the very last word of the psalm, the word forever. And if you check uh, the footnotes, it says that he will guide us Beyond death. That's what that phrase actually means. He will guide us beyond death. The the psalm ends by pointing to a city that's greater than the city of Jerusalem that that they knew. A, A life that exists beyond this life. That God who is our God will lead us and guide us. Because the truth is, even after Hezekiah's miraculous victory, Isaiah prophesied that although the Assyrians were defeated, the the Babylonians were going to come. And in 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem was in fact destroyed. And then with Nehemiah and Ezra, it was rebuilt. But then after the time of Christ in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed it. And so it can't simply mean that the walls, of the, the physical walls of that city of Jerusalem is where the presence of God is. There is a greater city that this psalm is pointing to. And that's why the author of Hebrews, when he's reflecting on people of faith in the Old Testament, this is why he said in Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Even when they were living in the promised land, they were strangers and exiles. But as it is, they desire a better country. 
That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then Hebrews 12, uh, 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And then ultimately in Revelation 21, we're given this picture. After Christ wins that, that battle for us, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away along with the first Jerusalem. And the sea was no more. No more ships of Tarshish. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That is the city of our God. That is where true greatness is found and when we live in light of the presence of God and when we trust in the protection of God and when we live lives of of praise towards our God we are getting our hearts ready to spend eternity in that glorious place let's bow our heads together and pray for God's help to be able to do that our heavenly father we love you we thank you for your word And we pray, Lord God, that you would be present here with us. And God, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ that we would seek true greatness, Lord, personally in our family, Lord, and in this church, God, that we would seek that your presence would dwell among us, Lord. We want to be a great church, God. But we want to be a great church because a great God dwells among us. We want to live great lives, God, and have great families, God. But we want to to live lives that are great and have families that are great because you, the great God, live in our midst. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ that by your Spirit, Lord, you would fill us with with a sense of your greatness, your presence with us, your power uh, towards us, Lord, and that we would praise you in this place for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.